Hi, welcome to MuseTech, a series of interviews with museum experts working in web and digital media. I'm Dana Allen-Greel, Professor of Museum Studies at the Johns Hopkins University. Today we're talking about the future of museum collections online, and we're joined by Aaron Cope, who is Senior Engineer at the Smithsonian's Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. Aaron is part of the team that rebuilt the Cooper Hewitt Collections website, a project that began recently and is an ongoing work in progress. So thanks for joining us today, Aaron. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to open up by setting the scene for our listeners a little bit. So imagine you're on the homepage of the Cooper Hewitt website, and you want to learn a little bit about what, what this museum is all about. So you click, you click Explore the Collections, and you're taken to a website that welcomes you to the alpha release of a new collection database, and which is followed by the tagline, this is our stuff, we have lots of it. Further down the page, you read that this online database represents about 60% of the collection, and that it is under active development, and that what you might see, or what you see might still be buggy, incomplete, or even erroneous. So Aaron, what I want to ask you is this approach is not one that I've often seen on museum websites, even that language and tone um, used to kind of describe what you're doing is, I think, unusual for museums. So can you tell us a little bit about the philosophy behind this idea of an alpha release and what are the risks involved and the potential payoffs of, of going with that approach? Um, the philosophy is, uh, I mean, there's a couple things driving it. One is um, we've been closed for renovation for almost two years now and will be closed for another year. Um, and we had a previous collections website that was sort of a standard run-of-the-mill uh, third-party vendor stuff, and it just wasn't very fun. Um, you know, in the absence of being, people being able to come to the museum um, and see stuff, we have uh, both a, a very active um, education program, uh, but that's in New York. So what does that mean for everyone else in the rest of the world? Um, and you know, we, it was motivated by trying to celebrate the collection. Um, and you know, it's a, we we are a design museum that began life as a decorative arts museum, um, and we've been trying to sort of straddle that relationship. It's a really, really good time to be a design museum in terms of, you know, more and more of the stuff that. Uh, we are actively collecting or imagining that we'll collect doesn't have any tangible form. Um, and so we need to think about how we talk about that, how we share that, how we let people refer to it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's true, I suppose. Um, it's, it may not be like most museum websites, but, uh, you know, I think most people, and in particular museum professionals, when when they talk about why they do this, it's uh, for some people it's you know the history and the scholarly aspects of it, but it's also just the delight that people have when they see the things in our collections. Um, 
you know, when they come to the museum and they see a given work. Um, there are museums that I will go to in cities and I will go to see exactly one work over and over and over again um, because I love it. And so what does it mean to try and reflect that on the digital side of things? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So sure, but that still doesn't really get at um, the idea of an alpha release, because what you could be doing is working on, you know, how to delight people behind the scenes and then wait until it's perfect and finished and launch it, which is, I think, the approach that a lot of institutions take. So what you're doing well, instead is saying, here it is, we're working on it, let's, let's all kind of test it out together. Yeah, I mean, so part of that is because, um, you know, the reason, the reason that I joined the Cooper Hewitt, Cooper Hewitt a couple of years ago was because, um, you know, we have this opportunity to try and figure out what it means to make museums part of the network, sort of the internet, um, and vice versa. Traditionally, I think we have treated it as though, um, you know, sort of the internet is like a rubber ducky just sort of floating in the bathtub. Um, I'm not sure what the other analogy is, but I I was talking to someone about it the other day, and I said it might be that we're trying to turn the rubber ducky into a mermaid, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, anyways, the the point is is that no one is quite sure what that means, um, and so we are going to work through that in public and in you know the 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 website, the collections website, is meant to be tangible proof of the direction that we're heading in as part of the larger project. Um, it's not a, you know, it's not a binary equation. It's not a question that the the internet and the collections website will replace the museum. Um, you know, if we if we made that argument, we would have to ask and answer a lot of very uncomfortable questions pretty quickly. Um, chief among them is, what's up with the building? Mm -hmm. um, but, and you know, I've gotten up and and said in you know in public why are we keeping all of this stuff uh, not because i don't think we should but because in the absence of being able to provide any access of that you know of the collection to people what are we doing mm -hmm. um, particularly for an institution like the smithsonian which is a public institution um, you know, our mandate is to everyone else out there, not necessarily to a board or to private collectors. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, all of that is to say that, um, that, you know, we have opinions about what we think the opportunity is, but um, no one's figured it out. Everyone's sort of stumbling through the present at the same time. So let's take an example of something that you've put out there, um, which is a new way to browse the collection by color. And mm -hmm. um, a lot of people I've talked with think that that is a really fun way and a new way that they haven't seen in a lot of places to explore a collection. So how did you come up with that idea? And then maybe even more importantly, what kind of response have you gotten from the user community about, about that? Um, way of interacting with the collection. Um, the search by color stuff was actually really was really lovely. Um, it it happened over the course of 
three or four days. Um, it happened over the course of a weekend. Uh, essentially, so Seb Chan, who is the head of digital and emerging media here, he used to work at the powerhouse, and he pointed out that um, someone he used to work with down there, a guy named Give, had written uh, software to extract a dominant power from an image. And it was a little, it wasn't sort of first past the post. It had a little bit of smarts in it. Um, and, you know, by the way, here's the code. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, that's quite good, isn't it? Um, and set up a little script to plow through all the images for the objects in our collection um, and extracted the colors. And then I was like, um, okay, what, what now? Uh, I had never done uh, color search before, so I started doing some reading and realized that with the possible exception of Google, and it's important to remember that you know Google doesn't count for anything anymore. I mean, they're just not a useful example. Um, they exist in a universe of their own making, and they've earned it, uh, but they are so far away from anything museums are able to do that um, you know, we spend a lot of time saying, well, Google can do it. And you're like, well, sure, if you had billions of dollars <laughs> and a workforce of, you know, 14 to 30,000, depending on how you're counting, mm. of course we could. Anyways, what I realized was that what almost everyone else did when they did color search was they would iterate through the entire corpus and calculate the distance between the input color and the colors in an image. Uh, and then sort that list and return the results, um, which I discounted out of hand because we are trying to build um, a layer of application code that uh, will will almost never have the kind of traffic that the big social media websites do, but we aspire to that. Um, and so we keep an eye on the amount of time it takes for things, operations to complete. Mm -hmm. So you um, needed code that would scale. Yeah. I mean, if we were going to do color search, we wanted to be able to put it on the internet and to just let random people use it at scale and, um, you know, not have every color search take 30, 40 seconds or however long it would be. Uh, so... This was over the weekend, and I realized the thing that most people did wasn't going to work for us. And I was like, um, uh, okay. And then eventually came across some code that um, someone else wrote. I should probably dig up their name because at this point they deserve they deserve credit for it. Um, basically, what they they did was they said, given a fixed palette and an input color, figure out where on that palette the color snaps to grid. Um, and so you can think about that. You can think about the sorts of color palettes that, there are, that are out there. There's uh, the Crayola color palette. There's the color palette that Lego uses. Uh, there are color palettes for colorblind people. Um, there is the CSS3 color palette, which on its own is the ugliest thing in the universe um, and actually appears to be perfect for doing search by color. Uh, so what we did was we took all of the all of the colors that were extracted from all of the images. And then we said, where does this color snap to grid? 
right? If we had like a very particular kind of blue, it would snap to navy blue or maybe sky blue, right? But that's the sort of level of of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That's the granularity that you're applying. You're not applying the entire color space of 32 million colors. Um, right. And what that means is we can index those colors. And, and it means that anytime you ask for a given color, we boil it down to the same granularity. Um, and what that means is two things. One, from an operational point of view, uh, we have something that can scale. Um, two, we have a framework that allows us to apply other color palettes, which we haven't done yet, but we will. Um, and three, you end up with buckets of results that are almost better than precise color matches. Um, because you end up with the fuzzy edges. You end up with all the things that have a little bit of blue, but you would have never found if you had gone down that road of sort of you know, measuring things really, really pre precisely. Um, and so you, we talk a lot about trying to create a surface area that people can work on um, and, and discover the collections. It's not just scholars and experts. It's increasingly, um, you know, people from all kinds of other walks of life who are just interested in the fact that the Smithsonian has a design collection that began life as a decorative arts collection. Um, and Do color you have is, examples of, of those kinds of people who are using, that you've heard from or that you know of, who have used this or any other way into the collection that you built? Do you have sort of like a... I don't know, a, a user story that you tell about what, how this is successful in, in those kinds of communities? Um, you know, this is the part where I always draw a blank, um, and the answer is no. Uh, and then the longer answer is, um, that's okay, we're patient. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, you know, this is where you start getting into sort of larger issues about museums and the way that we the way that we measure success of, of the things that we do. Um, do you know the, the expression Godwin's Law? Go ahead and explain it to us. Uh, Godwin law, Godwin's Law says that all conversations, like sooner or later somebody will invoke Hitler and at that point the conversation is just over. It can't go anywhere, it's just done. Um, and Godwin's Law in museums is usually something to the effect of, well, we're in this for the long run, what about you, right? Like. You little commercial startup, you won't be around in five years, which may or may not be true. Um, but museums, you know, will be here in 200 years. Uh, and that's good. We should be. Um, but we don't act like it. Right? We have this idea that the return on investment is, you know, six months, three months, maybe a year. Um, so, you know, that larger surface area and just trying to you know, create avenues for people to discover stuff. Um, I mean, I suppose, you know, the use case is lots of people still use it. It is probably the most trafficked part of the collection website. Um, yeah. it, is, it is a way that people can instantly start to find something in common with the collection, right? Because otherwise you come to it and you're like, okay, well, you've got... Uh, 
you've got a lot of old things and you've got like probably like you know i bet you might have you know if you don't if you don't live and breathe design you probably know what an eames chair looks like but you probably don't know who charles and ray eames are so you're mm -hmm. like chair yeah. uh, you know you don't really know what to look for it's just right, kind of like right. a random whereas color you suddenly like well i'm wearing something blue i wonder you know mm -hmm. i like red Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really important because we can't ask people to. I, I don't. I think it's unfair to to require the level of knowledge that you know the curators and the scholars have as the key to to entry. Mm -hmm. So what are some other ways that you're you're thinking about building those kinds of multiple entry points for people? Um, probably uh, starting to do a lot more data visualization, um, a lot more of trying to, um, time is the other big one. Um, one of the things that, you know, we will show you uh, we will tell you all of the objects that we acquired in a given year. Um, and one of the things we can do now, but we don't do a very good job of showing you, is in 1948, what are the, when were the objects we acquired from? Like, you know, in the 50s, we may have just been all about acquiring things from, you know, the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in the 60s, it suddenly pivoted and we were all about the present. So it was all about mid-century stuff. Um, at the same time, we have also, uh, we now list um, all of the donors to our collection. So you can see all of the objects that they put into, uh, that they gave us, which is super interesting. Um, you start to see the kinds of things that those individuals were interested in. Uh, and again, we can piggyback time on top of that. Um, we spend a lot of time trying to work out concordances between the individuals in our collection and the individuals in other collections. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that there is, you know, right now these are mostly just big static lists um, because that reflects the, that reflects the focus on the underlying plumbing and architecture of the website. Right. Um, but it doesn't necessarily reflect what the finished thing should look like. And in fact, you know, we hope that by exposing lots of, you know, by exposing just the data and by exposing lots of places for people to get that data, that we will see many different interpretations. Right. Uh, and this really resonates for me having worked in new media in museums for a long time but out of the education department mm -hmm. and how much you really need that sort of the basic building blocks in order to do anything else um, with the collection and so this idea of focusing on you know the plumbing and the basic building blocks in order to then later be able to do really interesting visualizations or kind of take the collection somewhere new you kind of need to first have um, some of this other work really done first. Yeah, 
I mean, one of the things that we we have been saying is that you know because we you know it's sort of classic the sort of classic dog fooding principle, which is that by the time we reopen, um, you know, assuming we assuming we pull it off, um, mm -hmm. the the building will be the single largest consumer of the collections API. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's that level of, you know, what we want to be able to do is uh, both for the reopening, but then also for subsequent exhibitions is to provide essentially a services layer for exhibition designers and scholars and, you know, and, and just casual tinkerers. To so let's back up, up a little bit. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm sorry. I'm just hoping you could back up a little bit and just explain in a nutshell <laughs> what mm -hmm. an API is and why you've, you're, you've made one open and or, you know, how you plan to use it internally. But kind of just give us the brief overview of what is an API and specifically what is Kipper Hewitt doing with an API. Sure. Uh, API is an acronym. It stands for Application Programming Interface, um, and it's basically a way for uh, one computer program to talk to another computer program. Um, you know, an, if you think about going to um, an, an individual object record on the website and you see a nicely formatted record with an image and lots of metadata, um, an API is roughly the same thing, but instead of being geared towards a human, it's geared towards a robot or a computer program. Um, and so it returns uh, nothing but the data stripped of all of the formatting, um, and the data is returned in some basic structured format such that you know, uh, a, a developer can work with it on a reliable basis. You know, if you ask for object one, you'll get back the same kind of data that you will for object two and, and so on. Um, and so, so what you've done is taken your API and made it available um, both to the kinds of projects that you're working on internally, but also to, I like this term tinkerers that you, you threw out there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, it forces us to, you know, the the, from an architectural standpoint, you know, if you imagine the API as one entry point and the website as another entry point, um, there is a little bit of scaffolding that is distinct and unique to each one of those entry points. But once you get past that, there is a common set of, of code that everyone shares. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know the the website will will start with one piece of scaffolding just because that's the fastest way to get data to the browser. But then as users start to do things, the website itself will begin to call the API because that's where you get into those questions of interaction design and you know not having to, not having to reload a page just to do something um, just makes for you know. A more pleasant time on the website, mm -hmm. um, and so you know. I, I mean, I guess um, you know. I, I you know I worked at at Flickr where it was just taken for granted that that's you know the it, the 
you know, of course you make the API public. You want people to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it forces you as as a service to you know, it sort of keeps you honest by using the same API and making sure it all works. And it's not there is no double standard, or you you know you try not to. Well, yeah, it keeps you honest, if nothing else. Occasionally, you have to make a decision where you're like, look, we're not going to let you do X, Y, and Z for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But the basic principle is that um, you know, the same tools that we have are there for you to do stuff with. Right. So what are the kinds of things you're thinking about for when you reopen? Um, what, what, I'm really interested in the interaction between the digital and the physical space. Um, and also the interaction between the two audiences that obviously overlap. You've got your online audiences who may or may not ever come to New York. You've got your visitors in the physical space who may or may not ever interact with you digitally. But mm-hmm. there's also this really big overlap in the middle of people who are either, you know, from the simplest, I checked your website before I came, found an object I wanted to see, and I came to visit, and then I went on your website while I'm standing there to find out more about this object. It's just a, I would say, a pretty common scenario of how someone mm-hmm. might be both a digital and online consumer of your collection's information. What kinds of ways um, are you thinking about um, the interactions people might have with your digital data when you reopen? Well, a um, couple ways to think about it. One is um, a lot of the work that my colleague Micah Walter has been doing um, is super interesting to me. He's been working with there's a service called Twilio, which which provides essentially text messaging, SMS, as an API. Um, and so you can you can send a text message to a given phone number uh, and get back a random object. Um, mm. You can send it an accession number or an object ID, and it will tell you the description. Um, and I think that stuff is really, I'm sort of super interested in that part of things. Um, you know, what does it mean to simply be able to say any object? We know it's got an ID. Once you once people understand that accession numbers are the key into something, what are the kinds of services that we can build around that that are sort of quiet and polite and just sit in the background? What mm-hmm. does it mean to simply be able to call any object in the gallery and just be like, tell me more about this? Or... You know, in the case of, um, you know, particularly in the case of a city like New York, where um, people spend so much of their time underground in subways where there is no network access, uh, what does it mean to be able to look at a wall label uh, and simply send a text message and maybe your email address? I mean, details are not, well, we'll save the details for later. Um, and then to be able to be emailed the full text of that, if there was an essay associated with that object, and to be able to get it and to be able to read it on your way home, because no one's mm-hmm. going to, no one reads ten thousand word essays in a gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're not very good about providing comfortable seating for people, um, so you know that's not the place that it's going to happen. Um, but you know, tools like the Twilio API, 
things that people and, and piggybacking on things that people already have with them, which is you know, their phones and ways of working, which they already understand, like sending myself a quick reminder as an email or text message. Um, you know, starting to look back out away from the museum and realizing that, you know, everyday life provides us with all of these tools for sharing what we do. Um, and then beyond that, there's this idea that I've been sort of tossing around for for a couple months now, which is um, having the confidence to be invisible. Uh, and that, you know, that's very much related to the question of how the museum thinks about the network. Um, because being invisible is not at all the same as not being present. And the example I always use is Wikipedia. Um, and Wikipedia's superpower is that uh, people put their phones back in their pockets. Right? And if you think about that, if you tease that one out and you realize what's going on is that you and I might be walking down the street um, and we are having a heated debate about uh, Cthulhu, for example. Um, and we're trying to figure out some obscure little known fact about Cthulhu and we go back and forth and back and forth. And one of us pulls out our phone and talks to the sky and gets information and then we, we look at it and we're like, okay, great, we sorted that one out. On to the next thing. Uh, and then whoever got their phone out puts it back in their pocket. And we keep walking down the street. Now, <laughs> that's not anything we've actually ever been able to do until relatively recently. And it's amazing. Mm -hmm. right? That ability to, you know, being out in nature, walking around the city, not connected to anything, and to sort of reach across space and time to find an answer and then to take it for granted enough that you're just like, now I, I don't need to have a more of an experience with my phone. Um, you know, that's kind of amazing. Um, I'm really glad you brought up this idea of being out in nature because it's something that I actually, as, as someone who also has a background in public health, um, I'm really interested in not um, being the kind of new media professional who just creates more time with a screen, sitting right. down, especially in front of a screen. And I'm really interested in ways that we can create digital experiences that that are part of your life and or mm -hmm. um, actively encourage you to get out in the world around you and maybe even think about ways that you can kind of um, – I don't know, repatriate the collection in a way and that it, it, it kind of goes back to where it originally belongs, which is maybe to a user of their local hometown. Um, so there was a, there used to be a, a social travel website. It's still sort of running on life support, but um, it was called Doppler. Mm. And essentially you told Doppler and then by extension, you know, a, a, a fixed set of people where you were traveling to. And the whole goal was that you would, they were trying to engineer serendipity oh, you're going to be in my town then, I'll be here too, let's go have dinner or whatever. Um, and one of the things that they did after their first year was they um, they sent everyone an individual annual personal report. And it was a PDF file that was one page long. It was, a, it was in portrait mode, and it was essentially a big infographic. 
and it would show you the highlight of the places you've been, and it would tell you a little bit about, um, it would tell you what your fuel consumption was in Hummers. So you might, you know, you might have uh, consumed two and a half Hummers worth of carbon over the year. Um, it they would calculate your velocity and show it to you as a as an animal or an object. So some people were birds, some people were ducks, other people were squirrels. If you hadn't traveled at all, um, you might be the um, the big slow moving. Uh, contraption that carried the space shuttle to and from the launch dock. Oh. Um, this is gorgeous, gorgeous work. And, you know, so that's another opportunity that, that particularly a museum of design and particularly something like the Smithsonian would have, which is, you know, if you're out walking around the city, the, pretty much the last thing you want is um, history clippy popping up all the time saying like, Oh, you look like you're walking past Andy Warhol's house. Did you know? Hey, guess what? Look over there, right? Like you're already busy just trying to navigate the city and probably, you know, doing something. Um, and to have culture sort of constantly nagging at you saying, guess what? Guess what? Um, <laughs> you know, I think we, I think ultimately we poison the well uh, yeah. if we take that approach. But, and this is, some, this is sort of hand-waving territory, but it's not impossible to imagine, particularly in an age with things like Foursquare and other services where people actively say where they are. Mm -hmm. You know, what if you were walking around some part of New York, the Upper East Side or, you know, whatever, um, and you had a museum application running on your phone? And then at the end of the day, we compiled all that and then said, oh, by the way, did you know that you walked past, you know, such and such a chair, such and such an object? We have, you know, six of these and you walked by four of them. I mean, that really becomes a question of how you, how you think about your collection and what you want to tell people about it. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, particularly for a design museum, right? like most of the stuff we have, there's lots of other people have it too, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. Particularly contemporary design. Uh, and so to think about ways of ways of of reflecting back people's lives to them through the prism of the museum, um, rather than you know rather than sort of always being front and center and badgering them um, and being and demanding of people's time. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting challenge, actually. Because um, I think so often we have conversations about, you know, I don't know, we built this app and nobody knows about it. Like, we need to market, 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 be in the face. Um, people need to know it's there and this whole concept of being invisible but in a way that's still extremely useful when people want to seek it out I think it's really interesting ground um, to be covering in museums yeah I mean I think you know and I think that's where you know you were talking about about the color search um, you know I think that those are you know that's um, 
you know, that's probably a place to investigate with, you know, sort of mobile apps or mobile websites. Like, you know, if you took a picture of yourself, what are the things, you know, if we could figure out the dominant colors of what you were wearing, or just like if you could point it at something, right? To start to think about, you know, how do we, I guess, yeah, how do we act as like that reflection and to just always be there when when you want? Um, I don't know if it was the Facebook people or someone someone else, but there's a there's an ex, an especially loathsome term which is kill time, which refers to the sort of five or ten minutes that people have waiting for the bus or right. you know, waiting for something. But you know those moments are real, and that someone has identified it as kill time is unfortunate, but that they've identified it, um, you know, is is the reason that things like Facebook are so successful. Um, mm. There is that desire just to sort of keep track of things. I have one friend who um, who lives in San Francisco, but who works in San Francisco, but lives in across the bay in Oakland. And he used to, just before the train would go under the bay and he would lose network connectivity, would just go to the Wikipedia site and hit random. And he'd be like, mm. now I'm just going to read a random article between here and Oakland. Which was lovely. Um, so, you know, we don't have all the answers and we don't, you know, we have hunches and we have motivation. Um, and then it's a question of, you know, being able to, you know, being able to iterate as quickly as possible and being able to understand that, um, you know, if something doesn't work, uh, you know, if we manage to get it out quickly, then that's okay. You know, on to the next thing. And sometimes, you know, sometimes these things just take a while. Sometimes, you know, everyone's busy doing all kinds of other stuff. Like, I have to pick up my laundry. I have to feed my children. I have to, you know, um, that they just don't have the space to consider all the possibilities of your amazing thing in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, going back to that idea about being patient, like that's almost, that's as much of the work as anything else is being patient and being able to articulate why something is there. Um, and, you know, part of that is starting to develop a, a, an approach and a methodology to working both institutionally and architecturally that allows you to do simple things quickly. So I'm getting a sense from you that there's a lot of open-ended, uh, um, I don't know, that's just the adjective that's coming up, that you've got, you've got ideas for, um, that you want people to be able to use the collections in ways that make sense for them and that there are tinkerers out there who might take what you have and build something new with it and so you don't have necessarily a very concrete sense of what that would be and in fact it almost feels like you want to keep it more kind of open-ended um you sort of limitless possibilities but how do you balance that with kind of defining specific goals that you want to achieve or or Imagining a specific user that you want to make sure that you're building for, in a way, you know, so that you're building something that is useful to them for a very specific reason. How are you kind of balancing those 
answers to your competing ways of thinking about the, the value of what you're doing? Um, well, we are working uh, very, very closely with the exhibition designers for the reopening shows. Um, and, you know, like I said before, what we're trying to do is is build out a services layer. And so we have, um, you know, we sort of have daily and weekly uh, feature requests and proof that things like the API aren't working. Um, uh, search is the other big one, which, uh, you know, I need to spend more time with um, in the very near future. Um, we know it's a bit clunky. Um, you know, we are we are trying to sort of build everything up from scratch, and so we block out sort of basic functionality and let it bake for a while, um, and then return to it when the time affords, or frankly, when people start complaining. Um, that's actually really really useful to us. Um, that you know, in terms of I, I talk about it as we are moving away from having a single audience, which historically has been scholars and experts, to uh, two audiences, which is scholars and experts still. Um, we need to and want to continue to be that resource for them, um, but also for casual visitors or you know, people who are just busy being awesome in other fields. Uh, and that's, you know, we talked about a bit that's a, a bit about that with the color search. Um, the random button is the other one. People love the random button. You just press it and you have no idea what's going to come up. Um, and so, you know, thinking about, you know, how the, how the collection becomes a way for people to think about the mandate of an institution like the Smithsonian, you know, beyond simply um, sort of very focused and very specific academic concerns. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the Smithsonian as an institution is kind of awesome. I mean, you know, we joke about having a lot of stuff because we do. Um, and, you know, we have a fraction of the stuff that the Smithsonian has. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the running joke is that the Smithsonian is the nation's attic. And I think some people, I'm told anyways, because I haven't, I haven't actually met any of these people, but I'm told some people think that that's a bad thing or mm -hmm. that it somehow reflects poorly on us. And I'm like, are you, are you kidding? Like, <laughs> you know, if the Smithsonian went away tomorrow, institutions like the Smithsonian, or the Library of Congress, you know, these sort of big publicly funded organizations that are that are designed to keep things safe, to protect history. If they went away, my argument is they would be rebuilt tomorrow. They may not look the same, they may have a different name, the specifics may be different, but the motivation and the fundamentals would be the same. Um, you know, we are we are afforded the luxury of our professions by our peers, and not by our professional peers, but all those people out there doing other stuff. Yeah. Um, because I think that 
you know, even if people don't necessarily know how to articulate it, I'm pretty sure that, you know, everyone values timekeepers. Everyone values someone taking care of the past. And the real opportunity that an institution like the Smithsonian has is that, um, you know, the U.S. isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, you know, all jokes about the dire state of the world notwithstanding, um, you know, the U.S. will probably still be here in a few years. And so the Smithsonian sort of has a mandate to pay attention to the present and to the near future. Um, and that's a sort of lovely place to, place to, to play in. And so there is this audience of all those other people, everyone else. And then, and this is a few years out, uh, you know, then there is the audience of what does it mean when the network itself starts to use the collection? What does it mean when robots start looking at the, at the collection? Um, I did a presentation in July and started out with, um, started out with a slide of a 300 pound robot that a defense contractor named Boston Dynamics had just announced. And it's a bipedal robot, and it, it it's terrifying. Um, it it walks upright. It has you know the sort of wally-eyed head of funny camera eyes. It's got arms. It can lift things. I mean, it's a you know, looks like a proper robot. Um, and it's supposed to be for disaster relief, and we'll see. <laughs> um, I can think of a lot of other things that might be used for. Um, but the thing that's kind of amazing about these devices is because the because disk space is so cheap and so large, and because computing power has gotten so advanced, we could take all the collections in all of the Smithsonian, probably all of the museums, and preload them onto these things. Uh, and then just as sort of, you know, just a flight of fancy, it's it's sort of fun to imagine them just like walking the earth, um, stopping at campfires and just telling people stories. Um, that's sort of as far as I got with them because they, they sort of terrify me, but um, so I think I might just be trying to make excuses for them. Um, but that's that part of, you know, there is this third audience of, you know, of computer programs and robots that we build um, and what are they going to, how are they, how are they going to use all this stuff that we're, that we're making? So, you know what I think is, first of all, this is really um, strong visual, these giant robots walking the earth, going up to campers with their, you know, their massive data. Um, but what you said is that they would tell stories, which I think is interesting because up until that point, I didn't know what the robot was going to do. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But telling stories is probably not what I would have guessed uh, because it's not something that we think of machines as being particularly good at doing. So we think of that as a pretty human um, talent, I guess, to take to take data and context and turn it into something dramatic and interesting and relevant to people. Um, but it doesn't seem, from what you were saying, that you feel like that's such a big jump to go from data. Well telling stories it's 
uh, that I think the jury's still out on that one. Um, I think that it, it's what's what's interesting right now is that we can even imagine that possibility. Um, uh, I routinely point to a Twitter account um, called the Self-Aware Roomba, um, <laughs> which is pretty much what it sounds like. Um, it's sort of the best Twitter account ever. Um, and I point to this because we have um, we have a Roomba in our collection. And I have a feeling that whoever this person is that's out there pretending to be a Roomba. Um, and, you know, there's sort of these funny, hilarious, tragic stories of, um, you know, the Roomba getting trapped or the Roomba trying to make friends with the cat. <laughs> um, you know, the Roomba doesn't know what to make of the dog. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's no question that there's a person um, behind this. But, you know, on some levels, it's not that the machines need to be actually sentient in the way that we might imagine it. Um, just sort of hopscotching a, a little bit. But you know, the other place that you see this is sensors being being placed all over the city and in buildings. You know, elevator shafts have sensors in them and they're recording their entire travel. So you can tell them when, you know, they can tell you when they went up and down. They can tell you how many people were in them. They can tell you the weight. Um, uh, you know, when, when Dominic Strauss-Kahn was first arrested in New York a couple of years ago, um, on, on charges of sexual assault, quite a lot of the case that was built against him was built using the log files from the key cards in the hotels, right? So the hotel is starting to keep a record of what's going on. And the example that I always, you know, I always say to people is, it, it's not that, you know, it's not that we know, you know, elevator songs, we don't usually think of the movements of elevators as sort of, you know, elevator songs, or we don't think of them the way we think of whale songs. Um, but it's not like we really understand what the whales are saying. Like we have no idea what they're saying. We, we guess. Um, and we start to imbue what we record with meaning. Um, and so I think that's the, you know, that's the, definitely squishy hand wavy territory um, and but I think that there's something there I think that that you know it I think that we have both a responsibility but you know beyond that just an opportunity to think about you know our collections and the network and what it all means you know what what happens when all those things start bumping up against one another Well, I think that's actually a really lovely way to, to wrap this up today. Um, thinking about the future of our collections online. Thanks again so much for taking time with us today. And I, I personally really look forward to seeing what else you, you put out on your alpha um, in the coming year and beyond, I'm sure. Awesome. Well, so thanks, thanks so much. Again.